So this morning we're resuming our mini-series uh, in this little section of Galatians 5, which deals with the fruit of the Spirit. And it's been a month since my last sermon on the subject, since I had some vacation time and other men covered the pulpit and dealt with different texts of Scripture in the intervening time. So let me begin this morning's sermon with a brief review of what we've covered so far. First of all, let me remind you that when Paul says the flesh here in this chapter, it contrasts the flesh with the spirit. Paul doesn't mean the body. The contrast here is not between the body and the Holy Spirit. Nor is Paul intending to mean human effort or ability, as if what Paul is contrasting is what we are able to do versus what the Holy Spirit is able to do. This is not the nature, neither of these is the nature of the contrast that's being set up here in this passage. Rather, when Paul says the flesh in this chapter, in Galatians 5, he's referring to the corruption of our sinful nature, which remains and causes us a persistent problem to some extent, even after We have been born again and made new creations in Christ. Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ really have experienced a radical change. Our inward affections and desires have been significantly reoriented. There is now a disdain for sin which wasn't there before. There is now a a hunger and a desire for the Word of God and to pray, to be among God's people, to come to church, things like that, which wasn't there before. However, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you would understand that that change which has happened is is not universal and entire. You don't always have a disdain for sin. You don't always want to be in the Word of God. You don't always want to be praying. You don't always feel like going to church. You recognize that there is still a battle going on within you. There is still remaining corruption. Even though you have been born again. Even though you have come to a saving faith in Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, there is still sin in you. The Holy Spirit has come to reside within you if you are a believer. So not only do you have new desires, new affections, so on and so forth, which war against the flesh, but also God Himself has come to reside in you if you are a believer. And He is called the Holy Spirit, which means that He is against sin. Right? That's at least one application, one outworking one, one basic inference of the fact that He is called the Holy Spirit. And so, the struggle becomes quite intense when we become Christians because now we are no longer content to just do whatever our sinful nature desires to do. We're no longer content to just kind of go with the flow and do what we feel like doing as time goes by. Our new nature desires that which is contrary to our old nature. And the Holy Spirit is working on us to make us a certain kind of person, which is in contrast 
to the kind of person we would be if we just followed our sinful desires. So we find ourselves as Christians in a war zone. Our sinful nature is constantly trying to shape us to become a certain kind of person. Still, even after we've been born again, even after we've been made new creations in Christ, there's that part of us that's like, man, pack it in. Go back to the old way of doing things. Right? Or this is just a small issue. Don't worry so much. Don't, don't, get, don't become fanatical in your new faith. Just this is a small thing. Just do this thing. Right? Our sinful nature is constantly trying to shape us to become a certain kind of person. And the Holy Spirit is working antithetically to our remaining corruption to shape us to be a very different kind of person than following our remaining corruption would make us. This is the battle between the flesh and the spirit that Paul is writing about in Galatians 5. And this battle is, as I said a few weeks ago, a zero-sum game. Like a seesaw in which, in which one end must go down if another end goes up. Or like budget categories, if you're a responsible budgeter, in which increasing an expenditure in one area means you need to decrease the ex- expenditure in another area. Right? It is a zero-sum game. If you gratify the desires of the flesh then you are denying the desires of the Spirit. And if you are gratifying the desires of the Spirit, then you are denying the desires of the flesh. If the flesh is prevailing, then the Spirit is grieved. And if you are walking by the Spirit, then you are not walking in the flesh. You can't serve the flesh and the Spirit at one and the same time. In one and the same day, Sure. And one in the same week? Sure. Because maybe you get all fired up on Sunday morning listening to the preaching. And you say, man, I'm going to walk by the Spirit this whole week. And you go home and you eat your lunch. And you skip your Sunday afternoon nap. And you read a whole book by one of the old Puritan authors. And your soul is just singing. And you're just in love with God. And your soul is just in rapture. And then Monday morning, you're on your way to work. And the feeling's kind of wearing off. And then you deal with a frustrating co-worker and this and that. And next thing you know, you're back walking in the flesh. Right? So you can walk according to the flesh at one moment and according to the Spirit at another. This is, this is what Paul is setting up for us. Is this idea that you're not past the flesh just because you're a Christian. But we do need to understand that at one and the same time, you can't be doing both. You can't be walking according to the Spirit and gratifying the desires of the flesh at one and the same time. And then, with respect to verse 18, where Paul says that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, the meaning is not that the Ten Commandments are no longer an applicable rule of life or standard for your moral conduct. Rather, as I expounded at length uh, probably five or six weeks ago now, the law is shorthand for the Old Covenant in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So the meaning becomes that there is a better way to obtain righteousness and blessedness than by law-keeping. And it would be regressive and detrimental to try to go back to the old way, put yourself back under the Old Covenant, which was an issue that some of 
the Christians in Galatia were struggling with. So Paul is kind of in an extended discussion of that theme and, and ties it in with this flesh and spirit discussion here. Uh, so I mentioned that because it's important to understand that it does not follow from, verse, uh, from a right interpretation of verse 18 that God no longer cares if we are idolaters or adulterers or murderers or coveters or whatever else, as long as you have the Spirit, right? That's not the right way to understand 18, okay? So the standard doesn't change, but the function of the law of God, the function of God's moral imperatives in our lives does change in that we're not trying to get righteousness and blessedness through law-keeping, okay? So the Spirit of the law, the Spirit of God will utilize the law in guiding us and leading us rather than making us lawless. I have spent three full sermons so far covering that material, which I just summarized for you in about five minutes. So if you're interested or you want to hear a more extended argument for what I just said to you, you can go back and listen to those sermons on the website if you're interested. However, this morning I just wanted to fly back over that ground briefly from 30,000 feet, so to speak, just by way of reminder for those of you who have heard it already but heard it a month ago and for the sake of some of you who may not have heard that material yet I want to kind of set up the context for you of what we're about to get into this morning as we come back to Galatians 5. Now with, with all of this preliminary stuff in place we come to the actual list of the fruit of the Spirit. Initially I was just going to jump right in with love. And then the next sermon would be joy. And then the next sermon would be peace and patience and so on and so forth. But as I started looking at it, I started to say, you know what? That might not be the best approach. Let's look at the concepts in Galatians 5. Let's frame it before we even come to the list. Okay, but here, here this morning we're starting to, to, to approach the list. And I, and I want to make two assertions this morning as we come to the actual list of what is called the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the first assertion is this. This list is representative, not exhaustive. Look at the contrast in this section of Galatians 5. What is the main contrast? Someone, someone call it out. What is the main contrast in this section in Galatians 5? Flesh versus spirit. Right? That's obvious. That's, very, that's easily discernible. The main contrast here in Galatians 5 is the flesh versus the spirit. Now, how does Paul develop that contrast? He gives two lists. So there is a contrast between the flesh and the spirit here in this passage. And by way of developing that contrast between the flesh and the spirit, Paul writes out two lists. So there is contrast, not only between the flesh and the spirit, but there is contrast between the two lists that we have here in Galatians 5. And Paul has set it up in such a way that there is complete contrast. As I said, a few moments ago. It is a zero-sum game to gratify 
the flesh is to deny the desires of the Spirit. And to gratify the desires of the Spirit is to deny the desires of the flesh. So we may expect these two lists to appear somewhat symmetrical since they are opposites and antitheses of one another. Two ends of the seesaw. The way that black and white has a certain symmetry. Or the way that a positive integer and, a ne- and the corresponding negative integer has a certain symmetry. Plus one and negative one, for example. Right? They are totally different. But they are different in a symmetrical way, if I can put it like that. The technical word for this kind of correspondence is not actually symmetry, though. But it is diametric. Not symmetric, but diametric. When things are not different like red and orange, or like a horse and a cow, but they're different like black and it's opposite, white. Or they're different like plus one and it's opposite, negative one. We could say that these things are diametric opposites. Okay, and it's, it's, it's di- diametric is the technical word. But the idea here is that there's a sameness, there's a corresponding sameness, but opposite, right? These things are diametrically opposed. So if the spirit and the flesh are diametrically opposed to one another, and the lists are diametrically opposed to one another, this is important for us to know Because we see that Paul adds four important words to the end of his list of the works of the flesh in verse 21. He lists a bunch of specific works of the flesh and then he says, look at it, and things like these. Now the works of the flesh are evident, verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So, if the flesh and spirit are diametric opposites, and the lists of a life governed by the flesh, and a list of the life governed by the spirit are diametric opposites, then it is safe to infer that we could add those four words to the list of the fruit of the Spirit also. And things like these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like these. This list of the fruit of the Spirit is representative, not exhaustive. So it is possible that the Holy Spirit could be working on bearing the fruit of humility in your life. Even though humility is not on the list. The Holy Spirit could be bearing the fruit of courage in your life. Even though courage is not on the list. Integrity. Even though integrity is not on the list. The Spirit can bear 
more and varied fruit in your life than simply what is listed here in Galatians 5. So we shouldn't take this in a very specific, literal, exhaustive, wooden way as if these are the, this is the limitations of what fruit the Spirit can bear in your life. We shouldn't read it like that. This list is representative. Let's look now at my second assertion. Okay, the first is that this list is representative, not exhaustive. The second assertion is this. This list contains overlap. We know that God's law can be summed up as loving God and neighbor. Jesus said that on these hang all the law and the prophets. So we could, we could almost imagine two hooks, okay? And you could take everything that God expects of a human being. And you could hang it on one or the other hook. Right? If God expects you, for example, not to bow down before a metal or a wooden idol, you could take that and hang it on the hook of love God. If God expects you not to steal from someone else, you could take that and hang it on the hook of loving your neighbor, so on and so forth. And you could go through all of God's moral requirements and you could hang everything that God requires of a human being on one or the other of those hooks. Love God and love your neighbor. That's literally all that God expects of any of us, is to love God and neighbor. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 10, 28, that if someone loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength, and with all their mind, and loved their neighbor as themselves, they would inherit eternal life. Someone comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this verse is brought up. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, do this, and you will live. So if loving God and neighbor encapsulates everything that is morally required of a human then wouldn't it be legitimate simply to say that the fruit of the Spirit is love? You see what I'm saying? Technically, yes. All that the Holy Spirit is up to in your life is making you more loving. That's, that's a fair, accurate, truthful summary of everything that the Holy Spirit is up to in your life. But a distinction, or soul... Therefore, a distinction is important here, which is a distinction between speaking properly and improperly. This is the way that some theologians put it, okay? The distinction is not the same as speaking appropriately or inappropriately. That's, that's how we might tend to hear this distinction between speaking properly or improperly. But that's not, that's not what's meant. It's not saying speaking properly is speaking appropriately and speaking improperly is speaking inappropriately. No. In the, in the theological, in the way that it's used in the theological world, the distinction is rather between speaking technically and precisely versus speaking loosely and conversationally or metaphorically or in another figure of speech as opposed to being technical and precise and literal. Alright? Speech can be true without being technically precise. Let me give you an example of that. Psalm 36 and verse 5, which says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. 
your faithfulness to the clouds. Alright? Does that mean to convey that when you hop on a plane to Miami and you are up above the clouds, you are outside of the bounds and the sphere of God's steadfast love towards you? I sure hope not or I'll never get on a plane again. Alright, I'm going to sail everywhere now and make sure I stay beneath the clouds. Alright? We can understand that that verse is saying something true, but it's saying it in an, an imprecise, not technical way, using a figure of speech. Okay? It's not inappropriate to speak about God's love that way, that your love reaches to the clouds. But is it a technic, technically precise, literal way of understanding where God's love is? No, it's not. Right? So that would be an example of speaking improperly as opposed to speaking properly. Alright, so since God's love reaches below the topsoil and up past the clouds, and yet we can speak improperly of God's love reaching to the heavens, alright? And it's still, it's still true, but it's just speaking improperly, loosely, conversationally, in this case, metaphorically, right? We recognize that there's a category for that kind of speech in the Bible. And we should understand that in Galatians 5, we're dealing with that kind of speech. That Paul is speaking more so loosely and conversationally than in a technical and precise way. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, implicitly, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Well, what we have to understand is that the last eight of those are redundant if Paul's already said love. Because if you love God and you love your neighbor, you've done enough to measure up to God's perfectly holy standard, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and verse 28. Right? You can't love someone while you're being unkind. You can't, you can't love someone while you're out of control as opposed to being self-controlled, right? You can't, you can't, a uh, little shout out to John Piper here, you can't love God without enjoying Him and rejoicing in Him, right? So, in other words, you need joy to love. You need gentleness and kindness to love and so on and so forth, okay? Now, What this means, we're back to my second assertion here, right? The first assertion was that this list is representative and not exhaustive. In other words, the Holy Spirit might be bearing fruit in your life that's not listed here. The second assertion is this, this list contains overlap. So we can certainly see overlap between love and joy or love and kindness or love and gentleness or whatever else. But, but it should also be observed that there may be overlap, say, for example, between kindness and gentleness. What is the exact, specific, precise difference between kindness and gentleness? There's probably some helpful investigation that we could do with respect to that question. Some, some legitimate inquiry that we could make into the difference between 
kindness and gentleness, for example. But we should also bear in mind that there's probably also a great degree of overlap. And the way that we might talk about an athlete and say that he's fast and speedy and quick and strong and durable and tough. And if you start thinking about each of those things, you realize that there's actually a lot of overlap between those things. And you're just prattling off characteristics that are loosely and roughly synonymous. And while each specific term might bring out some aspect of uniqueness, there may also be a, a great degree of overlap in terms of all of these adjectives that you pile up. And so it is here with the, the fruit of the Spirit. There is some degree of overlap in this list. Okay, now what is the point of this? What, are the po- what is the point of these two assertions? As we come to the actual list of these nine things that are mentioned, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we need to zoom out and understand the big picture of what's happening in this passage, which again is that the Spirit is working to make you a certain kind of person generally, which is in contrast to the kind of person you would be if the Spirit was not at work in your life and if you simply gratified the desires of the flesh and just did what you feel like doing did whatever seems right in your eyes just just live your life as normal without reference to God's law without reference to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is working to make you a very different in fact diametrically opposed kind of person then that life of gratifying the desires of the flesh would result in you becoming. And these lists are representative lists to highlight the different trajectory of two very different lives. There is the life, what does a life look like that is led by the Spirit and governed by the Spirit? What does a life look like which is led by the flesh and governed by the flesh? Hey, let me give you some examples you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and things like these. X, Y, Z, or Z for our American friends, and things like these. Alright? This is what's happening here in this passage. We need to understand that Paul is using these lists simply illustratively as part of a bigger thing that he's, he's trying to press on us, which is that we need to be yield, aware of yielding to and cooperating with the Holy Spirit who is trying to make us a certain kind of person. When we understand that principle then, the big picture of what Paul is trying to impress upon us in Galatians 5, we will understand that it is okay to add to the list of what fruit the Spirit may bear in our lives. Sanctification is not formulaic or reductionistic, just keeping a few rules. We can't, we can't just look at these nine character traits and say, well, I'm going to focus all my energy on these things. So you go ahead and focus all your energy on these things, but you've got no courage because it's not on the list. But you've got no humility because it's not on the list. So you become an arrogant, self-righteous person because you got the fruit of the Spirit. 
right? We will, we will come to understand that sanctification shouldn't be approached by just taking these nine things and then basically throwing ourselves at these nine things like a dart at a bullseye to the exclusion of everything else. If we recognize that, that this list is representative, if we recognize that, that this list is loose and conversational speaking, and Paul's trying to say, you get the idea. You need to become this sort of person, and this is the sort of person that the Holy Spirit is trying to make you become, then you're not going to approach sanctification in that re- reductionistic way of just listing out nine things, ma- making an action plan with action steps and agenda items and deadlines pertaining to growth in these nine things. You're going to view sanctification in a much more broad and nuanced and three-dimensional way. One way that we could think about sanctification is becoming like Jesus. Right? That God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, let's say that you had never met my wife. Right? And you said, John, we heard that you're married. What is your wife like? And I said, well, she's, she's beautiful, she's intelligent, she's competent, etc., etc. And I list for you, and I list for you nine adjectives. Now have I thoroughly exhausted who my wife is? And have I given you an, a, a, an entire description of who my wife is? No, of course not. Likewise, you can't simply say, well, who is Jesus? What is Jesus like? Well, He's loving, He's joyful, He's peaceful, He's patient, He's kind, He's good, He's gentle, He's faithful, and He's self-controlled. Boom. Got it. Now I understand who Jesus is. This is what we need to avoid in looking at the fruit of the Spirit, we need to avoid a reductionistic view which would, which, which, which would be liable to creep in if we thought that this list was an exhaustive list of what the Holy Spirit might be up to in your life. It would make us think of sanctification as a much more limited and two-dimensional and manageable task than it actually is. And and by implication, what we would be doing would be reducing the the fully orbed, three-dimensional, rich, varied character of Jesus, and we would be reductionistically boiling it down to simply these nine things. And we ought not to do that. Next, when we understand the principle... That, that Paul is enumerating, that the Holy Spirit is making us a certain kind of person in contrast to the sort of person we would become without the Holy Spirit if we simply gratified the desires of the flesh. And we understand that Paul is, is therefore speaking kind of loosely and conversationally and not in a technical and precise way and that there's overlap between these Uh, various things listed, which we call the fruit of the Spirit. That there's overlap, as I said, between love and joy, love and gentleness, love and self-control, or kindness and gentleness, or so on and so forth. Then we will 
understand that it's okay to consider more than one fruit of the Spirit together at the same time. If I said to you, what is God up to in your life? You say, well, I think He's, he's working on bearing kindness and gentleness in me. And I said, well, which one? You say, well, I don't know, maybe both. Say, well, He has to be working on one or the other. <laughs> you see? We can, we, can, we can view it sort of like, almost like a... Like a uh, I don't know if this is the right term for any visual artists in the room. Color wheel, color palette. You know, if you're if you ever been trying to like set the color on the background of your computer or something, and that thing comes up and you can move the point around and it goes to different shades or whatever. You can kind of understand that there's like where does the red stop and the green start, right? Or where does the green stop and the blue start? You can kind of see that there's some. You can trace some differences and some distinctions with respect to different areas of the color wheel. And you could say, yeah, that's way more red than blue or whatever. But you also have to recognize that it's not hard and fast lines. It's more like one thing bleeds over or crosses over into another. And it's something like that with the fruit of the Spirit. That we could recognize that there's a difference between the Holy Spirit working, for example, on kindness and gentleness in our lives, or working on, say, courage and fortitude. Those are fairly distinguishable things, right? But we also got to recognize that if the Holy Spirit is working on kindness and gentleness in our lives, He's probably also working on humility. Because we're going to tend to be harsh with people to the degree that we're not as humble as we ought to be. We think of ourselves more highly than we are. Right? So you can see that it's not an exact... It's not, it's not like your ice cube tray with very distinguishable little sections to put each individual ice cube in. You've got to recognize that, that there's crossover in terms of the various ways that the Holy Spirit might be at work in your life. It's okay to think of sanctification like this. And I will actually be, as we proceed with the actual list, I'll be doing this. I probably will be taking sometimes, maybe sometimes we'll look at one, but maybe sometimes we'll look at two or three together because of this fact that there is some overlap and some crossover. So, understanding that this list is not exhaustive and understanding also that it's Paul is speaking loosely and conversationally and heaping up a list of things that are not necessarily entirely distinct but overlap with one another to, to some extent. This helps us conceptually as we think about engaging with this list, as we think about the fruit of the Spirit and as we think about sanctification. I'm not really giving you specific applications this morning. I'm giving you doctrinal applications this morning. I'm giving you conceptual applications this morning. Because the way that we understand things does eventually work its way out into our lives. And so as I keep saying, it's important as we, as we work through this study that we don't simply get a better doctrine of sanctification. 
Imagine if we were, if we, if we all became experts on the doctrine of sanctification, and we were, we were esteemed scholars on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But our reputation in Barbados was those guys are not loving. Those guys are not joyful. Those guys are not peaceful. They're not patient. They're not kind. They're not good. They're not faithful. They're not gentle. They're not self-controlled. Then what would it profit us? Right? So we have to move past, beyond, simply getting a good doctrine of sanctification. But it's wrong to imagine that growing in Christ can be divorced from a good doctrine of sanctification. Alright, so I'm helping, I'm, I'm trying to help you conceptually, conceptually and doctrinally this morning. As God willing, next week I will jump into love. And we're going to start being a little more specific. And we're going to start trying to look at, okay, well let's look at this concept, this, this character trait. How do we grow in this? And as we do come to look at it more specifically, I want to give you this general framework for thinking about the fruit of the Spirit so that we're not wooden, literal, two-dimensional, reductionistic as we make our way through, but so that we're thinking in 3D and we're thinking in terms of color wheels and spectrums and so on and so forth. All right? In simple terms, the Christian life is this. Let me, let me, let me describe Christianity to you, okay? You're, you're really bad. So am I. All right? We're, we're morally bankrupt. But God requires perfect holiness to be reconciled to us and to enter into a healthy, good relationship with us and to receive us to Himself to live with Him forever. So this raises a pretty big problem. If God requires perfection of holiness and yet we're morally bankrupt, we got a major issue. Here's how that's resolved. In the fullness of time, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. What Jesus did was He came and He he met the perfect standard perfectly for us as our representative, as our substitute, so that God counts... Jesus' righteousness as being mine. And so I'm made right with God and I'm justified not on the basis of my own righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. That's what theologians call justification. It happens at the beginning of your Christian life. You're not rewarded with reconciliation with God and heaven after You've lived the entirety of your Christian life if you've done it good enough. You're rewarded with reconciliation with God and the hope of heaven at the beginning of your Christian life. Not for anything you've done, but because Jesus jumped over the hurdle that you couldn't clear for you. Jesus met the bar that you couldn't meet for you. Jesus satisfied God's holy demands for you. By trusting in Him, you're justified. This happens at the beginning of your Christian life. This, this Jesus' righteousness, is what reconciles you to God and gives you the hope of heaven. Now, when you're justified, are you at that moment as holy as you need to be? No. In fact, 
at that moment, you're no holier than the moment before. Right? Because that happens just in a second. God credits it to you. It, it actually has nothing to do with the change in you. It's simply that Jesus' merit is credited to your account. So you're just as bad as you were a minute ago. But now you're justified because of Jesus. So you see another problem here. The other problem here is that we actually have a need of becoming actually holy. This is what theologians typically call sanctification. Justification happens first and then sanctification ensues. So God saves us from the penalty of sin by giving us Jesus' righteousness. And then God begins working on us, making us actually more and more righteous like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. That's the process that Paul is writing about in Galatians 5. So he's not writing about how do you get saved. He's not writing about how do you become righteous enough to pass muster in God's courtroom. The answer to that question is simply trust in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Ask Him to credit His righteousness to you and be forgiven for His sake alone. What Paul's writing about in Galatians 5 is not that. What Paul's writing about in Galatians 5 is having been justified by grace through faith. What now? Having been made new and having received the Holy Spirit, what now? You need to walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean, Paul? What does that look like? Well, let me outline it for you. Here's the, what the flesh is going to produce in your life. Here's what the Spirit is going to produce in your life. There's going to be this ongoing battle. You need to be aware of what the Spirit's doing in your life. And you need to yield to Him and cooperate with Him. And that's how you grow in actual holiness. So that's the process of our whole lives. It's not something that you take like a weekend to work on intensively and then you got it. You don't just write down these nine bullet points on the list and then you got it. You realize that I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. I'm in the middle of a process of being made more and more like Jesus. That's three-dimensional. That's rich. That's a lifetime of work. This list here is just a small representative list. There's tons of overlap. We need to make sure that we add on the and things like these and think about our sanctification in a rich way that reflects the, the magnitude of what is going on. That God is taking unholy people and making them like His Holy Son, Jesus Christ.